John chapter 5, starting at verse 30, I've entitled the teaching tonight, Can I Get a Witness? And I know that there are some churches that you would say that in, Can I Get a Witness? And you get amens and everything else. So if you feel like doing that, that's fine. Feel free to uh, throw in an amen here or there if you want to. But let's start with verse 30. I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So we're going to see that this word witness is going to come up again and again in our teaching tonight. And witness. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines it as a person who makes a statement in a court about what he or she knows or has seen. And then it goes on to define it a little further. A person who is present at an event and can truthfully say that it happened. So the word witness is a very prominent word throughout the whole Gospel of John. Uh, It's used depending upon your translation, a total of 47 times. And we are witnesses of many things throughout the course of our day and throughout the course of our week. It's a word we're familiar with. Let's say you take your car to a mechanic and he does a good job. You can be a witness of that. You can tell other people that, hey, he was a good mechanic. Or, on the flip side, no, he's not a very good mechanic at all. My car still doesn't work the way that I had hoped it would. So we can witness of that. We witness the weather. We witness that today. I don't know if it's still snowing or not, but uh, that's something we see and uh, witness every day. Uh, traffic <laughs> on I-25 or whatever. Good traffic, bad traffic. Uh, we witness that. Sporting events. The list goes on and on of things that we witness, that we can testify of. And in this passage tonight, Jesus uses the words that we'll see uh, uh, several times. Witness, he uses that eight times in this passage. Testify or testimony, he uses three times. And in that, witness and testimony, he uses the word believe uh, six times. So we know that Jesus did bear witness of or testify of himself. But this audience that he has in this text tonight, we know that they would not believe for whatever reason. Verse 30, again, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the text preceding this, uh, we saw how Jesus was one with the Father. It was uh, verse after verse that we looked at there to see that Jesus worked in perfect harmony with the Father. Jesus represented the Father perfectly. He was one with the Father. He, we saw in that text that he said that God is my Father. My Father and I work together as one. My Father and I give life. Uh, my Father and I judge. My Father and I have life. We looked at those things a couple weeks ago. And he's saying most assuredly, this is who I am. He gave us a good explanation of who He was as the the Son of God and as we know as God Himself. So in verse 31 in our text tonight, it says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Proverbs uh, 
chapter 27, verse 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Have you run into people that like to talk about themselves, that like to boast about themselves and what they know, what they do, or whatever? It's, uh, you, you could call them an eye monster almost. I, 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 me, 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 me. You know, over and over again, they like to speak of themselves. But Proverbs tells us, let another man praise you, not, not your own mouth, a stranger, not coming from your own lips. So some of you know that uh, I'm a golfer. I, I like to golf. I really enjoy golfing. I like to play whenever I can. I could make the statement tonight that I am the best golfer in all of Berthoud. I could make that statement, couldn't I? And for those of you that don't play golf, maybe don't know anything about golf, you might be duped into believing that. I don't know. But I'm the best golfer in all of Berthoud. Now, the only way that that could be verified would be to look at the proof, wouldn't it? Uh, where's the evidence? Am I truly the best golfer? There are those that have witnessed my play. Would they testify that this was true of me? There are those who have played golf with me, uh, and they could verify where my golf game stands. There's uh, a gentleman in, in Greeley, another pastor there, that we have played golf together a lot. And I would say that we're probably at about the same skill level in our golf game. I'm not going to go into what that skill level is necessarily, but uh, what I have to share with you next will probably give you some indication. But we were out playing one day, and for whatever reason, I could not help but to top the golf ball. Now, I don't know if all of you know what that means, but you tee up the golf ball, and as you swing through, a good solid contact would be in the sweet spot of the club, but if you're above that a little bit, you're going to top it, and it's just going to kind of spurt out there and not go very far. So after about three or four holes of doing that consistently, I turned to my friend, Terry, and I said, hey, can, can you watch me as I swing this next time to determine maybe what I'm doing wrong? I can't figure this out. And, and he said, well, sure, yeah, I'll watch and see what, what you got going. So I set up, swing through, same thing again, top the ball. And I said, what, what's going on? Did you see what I was doing wrong? And he said, yeah, I did. I, th I think I've got it figured out. And I go, what? He goes, it appears to me that your feet are too close to the ball after you hit it. Now think about that for a second. My feet are too close to the ball after I hit it. Okay. You're, you're following me now. But you can safely assume from that that I'm not the best golfer in all of Berthet. I'm not the best golfer in all of really anywhere or anything. Uh, but now on the other hand, if I said of myself, I am the most well-known 55-year-old Calvary Chapel pastor that is teaching right now at the old Foursquare Church in Berthet. I've got witnesses to that. Amen? You'd say that's, that's true, Pastor Jim, because you are the only 55-year-old Calvary Chapel pastor teaching in this building right now. We, you could be witnesses of that. You could testify to that and know that to be true. So Jesus in this text is referring to Old Testament law, or He's going to, to give further witness or testimony 
to his words. We've already seen him say, most assuredly, in our text last time, this is who I am. But he says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now in the law, God set some standards down, one of them being on this very particular topic. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. We get that in the Old Testament. Makes sense. Uh, we, we use that uh, regularly in the church as well for uh, you know, correction and rebuke in the church. Uh, or should. Most churches uh, do. And it's, it's something that if this someone comes up and says so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that, you don't want to take the word of just the one witness. You want it to be corroborated by someone else. So it's, the text tells us, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. That gives credence to what they're saying. You've got a, a group of people, not just one person, giving witness of this. Paul confirms this as well in 2 Corinthians 13.1. He said, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. You know, we see that in our, our lives uh, daily. If someone tells us something, uh, it may be confirmed by someone else that we work with, uh, that we uh, are friends with. It could be uh, confirmed by the news. I wouldn't necessarily use the news as the first and, and foremost all the time. Uh, we, we don't always, especially when it comes to weather, right? I don't know where they get the people that do the weather. Uh, I was sitting in on a on a, a board meeting at Hewlett-Packard one time when I worked back there. And one of the guys started talking about the business forecasters. And I raised my hand and they said, yeah. And I said, is it true that we get our business forecasters from people that just couldn't make it as meteorologists? You know, because I really felt that was, that was true because they didn't know what the business was going to do either. You know, so it just seemed logical in that way. But we also see this rule this thing practiced in our judicial system as well, don't we? Um, where they call witnesses up again and again and again to give uh, witnesses for the defense or witnesses for the prosecution. Uh, it's based upon the credibility of the witness and unfortunately also the attorney that's asking the questions. And here's some examples of that not working well. The lawyer says, Now Mrs. Johnson... How was your first marriage terminated? The witness says, by death. The lawyer says, and by whose death was it terminated? By whose death was it terminated? That just didn't... Maybe the next one. The lawyer says, what was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke that morning? The witness said, he said, where am I, Kathy? The lawyer said, and why, why did that upset you? She said, because my name is Susan. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's working now. One more. So the lawyer said to the witness, and what did he do then? The witness says, he came home, and the next morning he, he was dead. To which the lawyer responds, so then, when he woke up the next morning, he was dead? Are there any attorneys here or lawyers? 
I don't mean that personally against anyone. So in the Old Testament, the law says that it takes at least two witnesses to establish truth or a fact. Now in this text, we're going to see tonight that Jesus doubles that and gives us four witnesses. Four witnesses that Jesus uses. He uses John the Baptist. He uses the witness of his own works. He uses the witness of his father. And he uses the witness of the scriptures. So John the Baptist, his own works, his father, and the scriptures. So Jesus is giving to those who he is speaking to in this text and to us these four witnesses, four credible witnesses that testify of who Jesus is. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So number one, if you're a note taker, who does John say that I am? Who does John the Baptist say that Jesus is? Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Flip over, if you will, back to John chapter 1, real quick. John chapter 1. And we looked at this earlier when we were going through chapter 1 in the book of John. Starting with verse 19, it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose." And these things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is John the Baptist's witness. He goes on to say in verse 34, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So what did John the Baptist proclaim? Just as we read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, here is the man, here is the individual coming on the scene right now, who's going to take 
my place. I am just the forerunner. I am the one to introduce Christ. That's what my ministry is, to baptize and to point to Jesus Christ. He is here now, and he's going to take away the sin of the world. John bearing witness of that. Jesus then says of him in verse 35 in our text, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Look at chapter 1 again, starting with the verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6 talks about this light. This is where John the Baptist is introduced first in this gospel. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of what? Of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. In these three short verses that we just looked at, the whole of John the Baptist's ministry is explained. He's not the light. He came to bear witness of the light, and he came for a witness of that light. He came to illuminate that which was the true light. So we have, if you're a note taker, number one, who does John say that I am? Now number two, who does my works say that I am? Verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is saying, okay, John the Baptist is a witness, but also the works that I do are a witness of me. And you've seen some of my works. They, they were aware of some of the works that he's done. We can remember back in, early in John chapter 3, that meeting with Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night, the whole Nick at night scene that took place. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What's Nicodemus saying there? Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders of the day. He had seen signs that Jesus had done. He came to Jesus and he says to him, you're a teacher come from God. Well, we know that. You have to be. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, what signs? What works, what signs has Jesus done up to this point? Well, if you remember through our study of John, sign number one, the wedding in Cana, he changed the water into wine. Now, chronologically in John, that's all we have documented up to that point, is that he changed the water into wine. And then we know that he went to Jerusalem, turned over the money changers' tables, that whole scene happened. And then later in that week, Nicodemus come to see him at night, so what were the signs, what were the miracles that Jesus was doing that were so impressed Nicodemus? We don't really know from John's Gospel. If we look at it chronologically through a harmony of the Gospels, we see that there were some other things that were done there. But we don't know for sure what all of them were. But we do know that they impressed Nicodemus. Nicodemus was impressed to the point that he wanted to go and speak with Jesus about these things. So Nicodemus said signs, so other works had been done. Leading Nicodemus to proclaim what we just looked at in this verse, that he's a teacher come from God. God is with him. Now Nicodemus didn't understand it, but he had witnessed some of these signs, some of these works. Also, sign number two, we saw in John chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son, the long-distance miracle, where Jesus wasn't even there and healed this young boy 
a distance away. And Jesus said in John 4, 48, when this nobleman came to him and said, I need you to come with me and heal my son, Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The people wanted signs and wonders. Jesus gave them signs and wonders as well. Yet some of them still didn't believe. Sign number three, John chapter 5, early in the chapter, the healing of the crippled man at the pools of Bethesda. We know from that text that it was evident the man was healed. So why didn't the Jews look for a witness for that? I mean, he came to the Jewish religious leaders. They asked him, why are you carrying your mat, your bed? And the man said, I, I was healed. I couldn't walk before. I can now. Jesus healed me. And they didn't seem to be very concerned with that at all, did they? They were just upset that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. But they could have at that time, well, let's find out about this. The guy had to have family, friends. He had to have other people that knew him or knew of him. So they could have went and questioned him at the time, but they didn't want to do that. They, they just wanted to get hung up on the fact that that was done on the Sabbath. So these very Jewish uh, religious leaders that Jesus is addressing at this time in our text in John chapter 5, they could have brought forth the servants and the disciples to verify the changing of the water into wine. You remember from that story, the servants brought water Jesus changed it to wine. Those same servants took it to the master of the feast. So they knew something had happened. Wow, it was water, now it's, now it's wine. They would have been a witness. They could testify to that. They could have went to them. I'm sure they heard of this miracle in Cana. They could have checked with the nobleman, especially. He would have been one of their peers. His family, his servants, his friends. They could have questioned them to find out. They could have checked with uh, the family and friends of the crippled man at the pools of Bethesda. In that, they could have verified the works of Jesus. Now, he had many more works to do with many more witnesses. We're going to see next week the feeding of the 5,000. The text said it was 5,000 men. By the time you add on wives and, and kids and, uh, you know, the thousands, maybe, maybe double that, maybe more than that, I don't know. But thousands of witnesses that were fed. They were hungry, and then they were fed, and the food just never ran out. It was, it was a sign. It was a miracle. We know that. So Jer Jesus said, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So all of these works that we just talked about, that's just a few. That's just a few things that took place up until this point, and they could have checked those things out. So number one, who does John say that I am? Number two, who does my work say that I am? And number three, who does the Father say that I am? Verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Now we learn in John chapter 1, Jesus was the Word, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's proclaimed by the Apostle John in this Gospel. So He was the Word. The Father sent the Word to be with us. And He said, you don't have His Word abiding in you because Him who you sent, who is the actual Word, Him you do not believe. So up to this point, what has the Father said about His Son? Well, when we look at the other Gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism... 
we see that suddenly a voice comes from heaven, don't we? In Matthew 3.17, this voice that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then also later in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17.5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. The audible voice of God coming forth as a witness, as a testimony saying, hear him, listen to him. So who does John say that I am? We've looked at that, number one. Who does the work say that I am? Number two. Who does the Father say that I am? Number three. And now number four. Who does the Scriptures say that I am? What prophecies from the Old Testament has Jesus fulfilled so, so far? So I printed out this list. There's a number of them back on the table in the back. You can grab one after the service if you want. It's, just, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And let's just, we'll, we'll look at the first eight of these. Uh, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says he'll be a descendant of Abraham. Fulfilled, right? That he'll be a descendant of Isaac. He'll be a descendant of Jacob. All three of those fulfilled. He's going to be a descendant from the tribe of Judah. Fulfilled. Be a descendant of David, an heir to his throne. Fulfilled. Be anointed and eternal. Fulfilled. Be anointed with the Spirit of God. Saw that at the baptism, right? Born in Bethlehem. Born at a specific time. Born of a virgin. That there would be a slaughter of children at the time of his birth. There would be a flight to Egypt. There would be a way prepared, the witness of John, right? Messiah is preceded by a forerunner, John the Baptist. That's just a few. The list goes on and on. So Scripture is already testifying of him and witnessing of him, just as he said, from Old Testament Scriptures, prophecies fulfilled. So why is this important? Because these are prophecies that these same religious leaders that he's addressing in this text, that he was talking with, they could have checked them out, couldn't they? They thought that Jesus came from Nazareth when he was born in Bethlehem. Couldn't they have checked that out? Yeah, they, they just didn't. I, I don't know why. So throughout the Old Testament, there were more than 300 predictions concerning the Messiah that were fulfilled in the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of, of Christ. Now, you've probably heard this before, but we'll go over it again. What would be the odds of one person fulfilling the, these prophecies by chance? The number, it's just so astronomical that it puts chance totally out of the picture. Chance doesn't even come into play here uh, with these odds. In his book, Science Speaks, the author Peter Stoner estimates that the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these messianic prophecies, these ones that we looked at, just eight of them, is one in ten to the 17th power. So those of you that are really good at math, you know that, that's a big number, isn't it? Stoner illustrates this by supposing that we take ten to the 17th power, that number, that huge number of silver dollars, and lay them all over the face of Texas. Doing that, it would cover the state 
two foot deep in these half dollars with that number. Now, we mark one of these silver dollars and then stir all of them thoroughly all over the state, which takes a big stick too. Texas is a big state, right? Everything's big in Texas, so it's going to take a big stick. We know that. So then if we were to blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say this is the right one, what chance would he have of getting the right one? So of all of those silver dollars, if we put a red mark on it, painted it black, whatever, stirred them all up in the state of Texas two feet deep and just sent him off blindfolded, the chances of him picking up just that one that we marked throughout the whole state would be that one in the 17th power. So just the same chance that the prophets would have had writing these eight prophecies and then having them come true in any one man from their day to the present time. But we know that they did, don't we? We know that all of those prophecies were fulfilled. So it's clear that chance had nothing to do with this. It's also important to note that the design that was spelled out in prophecy was far beyond any one person's ability to control because they were fulfilled at, it wasn't just the prophecies that were fulfilled, it was at the time that they were filled as well. Who would, have, who would have known? So from the place of the Messiah's birth to the amount of money offered for his betrayal, we find factors that were out of any person's ability to arrange. It just wouldn't be possible. So Jesus could not by chance or by his own personal effort have fulfilled those 300 predictions. It had to be by God's design. Amen? It had to be. No doubt. So verse 39 says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. (laughs) Okay, who's he speaking to again? The religious leaders? That one had to hurt. I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? So we know that Scripture is our point of reference. It's our foundation. It's our basis for us to look at and to to witness and to testify that the things Jesus did, said, taught, all of those things are true. We know that to be true. We have the internal evidence of these 66 books of more than 40 authors over 1,500 years, three languages, three continents, and they all agree perfectly. And then we have external evidence of time and archaeology. There's a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey, and he tried to disprove Luke as a credible historian. The Apostle Luke was going to try to disprove him as a credible historian. And after an exhausting investigation, he concluded that Luke was one of the best historians ever, and Sir William Ramsey converted to Christianity. We've all heard of uh, Josh McDowell. He tried to disprove Christianity, and he became a Christian in the process because of the evidence presented uh, in Scripture. His book was entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great, great book for you to read if you've never read that. Scripture itself was being a credible witness, a testimony of Jesus Christ. Josh McDowell quoted saying, After I set out to refute Christianity 
intellectually and couldn't, I came to the conclusion the Bible was true and Jesus Christ was God's son. Great witness, great testimony of Josh McDowell. Verse 45 says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Boy, Jesus just keeps attacking here, doesn't he? I mean, he's bringing stuff uh, that had to be <laughs> very, very convicting to these guys. I don't think it was. I think it was just making them more and more angry. I do find it interesting that in this text, if we start in chapter 5 of John, if you have a red letter Bible, most of all of the chapter 5 is in red letter. Jesus is doing all the talking here, isn't he? And when he finishes, when he finishes chapter 5, nothing's said in rebuttal. It just finishes with the words of Jesus. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because there is no rebuttal, right? I mean, how can they argue with Jesus in this case? Numbers chapter 21, verse 9 says, So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if the serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The children of Israel were in sin. There was sin in the camp. And so uh, Moses made this bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And if anyone was bitten by one of these serpents, he, all he had to do was look at this bronze serpent, look upon it, and he lived. We see Jesus talk about this in John chapter 3 when we looked at it earlier in verses 14 and 15. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what was lifted up on the pole, up on the cross, Jesus himself, the bite of sin, the snake of sin in their lives, looking upon the cross, sins could be forgiven, right? They could be delivered from that. It's interesting that Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. Moses had that pole. It was a picture for us of what Christ was going to do on the cross for us. And then Jesus himself even refers to it, to Moses here and what he wrote. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 19, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And then in verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. You probably heard it quoted before. It's one thing to know the word of God. It's another thing to know the God of the word. That's where these Jewish religious leaders were. They knew the word of God. They knew every dot and tittle in God's word. Especially, you know, focused upon the law especially. Somehow they, they tended to miss out on the prophecies. They knew the prophecies were going to come to pass. They just didn't see Jesus as the one that was fulfilling them. But it's another thing altogether to know the God of the Word. We know that to be true, don't we? The, the scripture says that knowledge puffs up. So we can study and know and have knowledge of God's Word. But if we never cross over to that point where we recognize and know God of the Word, what He had to say, what He did for us, the love that He has for us, then we're missing it, aren't we? The Jewish scribes, we know, they sought to know the Word of God, to know it completely. 
They counted the very letters of the text when they were uh, writing it, but they missed the spiritual truths contained therein. One of the authors, one of the commentators that I really like to reference is Warren Wiersbe. And in his commentary, he points out that there were at least three things wrong with these Jewish leaders regarding Scripture. They were wrong in their minds that they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah in their own Scriptures. They were wrong in their wills that they didn't trust Jesus as the Savior. And they were wrong in their hearts because they lacked love in their hearts for Jesus and as the Messiah, so they lacked love for God Himself. That's what Jesus was saying in that scripture earlier, right? You don't have the love of God in you because you, you haven't accepted me. So number one, Jesus' witnesses here, it was what is or who does John say that I am? Number two, who does my works say that I am? Number three, who does the Father say that I am? And number four, who does the scriptures say that I am? Now I've gone over those fairly quickly tonight. We've kind of covered those at a cursory level. But we know that each one of those you could do a whole teaching on, if not a whole series on, just of the depth of what's there. But in each one of these points that we've looked at so far, what's, what's the application for us in this? Turn over with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this is going to be familiar text to a lot of you because it's recorded in uh, this gospel and two others. Starting with verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, who do men say that I am, that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus asked of his disciples and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus asks this same question of us tonight as well. I believe he asks it every day of our lives as well. Point number five, who do you say that I am? Who does John the Baptist say that I am? Who does the, my work say that I am? Who does Scripture say that I am? Who does the Father say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If we have relationship with Jesus Christ, if we have trusted in Him for our salvation, if we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, then we know Him as Christ, the, the Son of God. Everything He said about Himself was true. He has credible witnesses to testify of Him. John the Baptist, His own works, His Father, the Scriptures, and us that know Him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says, Therefore we also, us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, do you realize that if we were just to memorize those two verses, what a witness that that would be? It's a witness not only from us, but we are surrounded by what? Such a great cloud of witnesses. Those around us that have relationship with Jesus Christ as well. Coming together and proclaiming, testifying, witness of who He is and what He's done in our lives. We are witnesses for Jesus Christ as well in our own lives for those around us. We have opportunity each and every day of our lives to stand and be strong for that witness. We've talked about it many times before that if we are to pray each and every morning, each and every evening, God, tomorrow, put in my path a divine appointment, an opportunity for me to encourage someone to you or encourage someone in you so that we then, through the power of the Holy Spirit and God's strength working in us, by His very words, are able to encourage someone in that way. Amen?